the Siege of New Hampshire series by Mick Rowland. Book Four, Susan's Bridge. Chapter 10, Juju and Five Boxes. Susan sat up suddenly awake. Her face and hands felt clammy. The dream had started again. All she could remember was being on the deck of the boat. The wave hadn't yet appeared, but she knew it would. She lay back with a sigh. She had hoped the dreams were done. The dim blue rectangle of the window helped her focus her mind on reality. The day was going to be a busy one. A day of actually doing something. Better to concentrate on that. The room was still dark. She dressed quickly to preserve whatever body heat she could. With the drone tarp draped over her forearm like a shield, she slowly cracked open the cabin door. She pulled her hair back off her ear to listen. Silence. She needed to wait until the first drone passed before packing her things. One of the rules of living with drones was to remain motionless while they passed, no matter where you were. Eventually, the faint sound of buzzing crossed the threshold of what the ear can hear. She felt her muscles tense up. Standing behind the door, Susan tried to determine the distance and direction. Few of the drones passed directly over the camp, although there was that one that chased them into hiding in the furniture van. This one sounded farther north, closer to the border. When the buzz was no longer audible, she began a flurry of packing. Living out of the backpack for several days had left it a jumble. The only way for everything to fit back into it was to be carefully placed. Despite the tedium of the task, she began to softly whistle a little tune. Today she would be across the river, doing something actually productive. She planned to coordinate a truckload of supplies specifically for Cheshire. She imagined riding in that truck all the way back. Doing so might mean she might not return to camp. Everything she owned needed to go into her bag or be lashed to the side. After five minutes of packing, she stopped to listen at the door again. Her eyes darted from one nothing to the next, not really looking, but listening. Finally, she could pull a faint buzz out of the velvet silence. The drone was even farther north. It was hard to decide when the sound actually stopped, so she gave it a little longer, just to be sure. Compressing her spare clothing took time. The sleeping bag took three tries to roll up properly. A few snack items that she had gleaned, special chicken jerky flakes, half a flatbread, a handful of pearled wheat in a plastic bag, could go in a side pocket. Her water bottle was lashed down. The tools were returned to their pockets near the top. The drone tarp had to be rolled and draped over the top. It hadn't been part of her original kit. She pulled on her loaded backpack and bounced a few times to listen for loose items or rattles. Her hunting stick flapped against the side of her pack. It needed to be tied down tighter. It had been a few days since she had worn her full load. She felt top-heavy. You're riding in the front seat today, she said to her jar of olives. She pushed it into her coat pocket. A glance around the cabin reassured her that she had left nothing behind. The time for the border guards to pass would be upon her soon. She rushed around the corner of the cabin, 
past the lodge, and trotted down the hill. Down near the river road, one of the sentries, she couldn't tell which one, waved her off. He motioned for her to find cover. She could hear no tire noise, but figured it would be soon. The bare hill and bare tree trunks offered no concealment. The guardsmen or police had been up and down the river road dozens of times. They would be sure to spot an odd lump behind one of the trees, even if they were only casually looking out the window. She jogged across the slope toward a thicket of brambles that grew along a tumble-down stone wall. The wall was roughly perpendicular to River Road, so not ideal. It would shield her from view in one direction, but not the other. Which way were they coming from? Guessing that she had not missed the first passing, she pushed into the thicket to lie along the northern side of the rocks. The ground was cold. There was no time to rake up an insulating layer of leaves. She could feel the cold stones pulling the heat out of her. The sound of high-pitched tire whine grew louder than her breathing. Stadies, she thought. She lay motionless until the tire noise faded into nothing. There might not be enough time to run across the road and find a new hiding place before the outgoing shift returned. Her best bet was to hunker down on the southern side of the wall and wait. With the operation this close to completion, it was no time to take foolish chances. Pushing herself and her loaded pack through the brambles to the other side of the wall felt like trying to thread a needle with a rope. Every branch and stem conspired to stop her. The louder, lower-pitched hum of military tires began. She settled up against the cold stones, lying motionless. Out of the corner of her eye, she could see a slice of the road. The Humvee rumbled by, a tan blur. The changing of the guard was complete. When the tire hum was gone, she pushed her way out of the brambles and down the hill. The sentry waved her across the road. She could stop running once she was inside the brushy woods. From the bridge, she could hear the soft thud and clank of work beginning. Hal stood at the eastern end of the bridge. Jaron said he's escorting you to the staging area. You're supposed to wait here. Hmm, Susan frowned. Standing around, waiting for Charon, had no appeal. Well, when he gets here, tell him I'm out on the bridge. She didn't wait for approval or an answer. Three-quarters of the way across the bridge, Justine was directing a group of people. Two men were up in the girders with large wrenches. Others were spread along the railing. Give them both one more turn, Justine said loudly. The men twisted their wrenches around large turnbuckles. Heavy steel cables groaned in a soft rising note with the added tension. Half an inch more, called a woman in a blue coat. She was on her hands and knees, looking at a tip measure hung down to the deck from the beams. One more turn, Justine said to the men. That's good. Blue coat woman held high a mittened thumbs up. Right on the mark. Excellent. Justine clapped her hands and smiled. Okay, everyone, move down to bay six. The same thing for those cables. Fine-tuning? Susan asked. Oh, Miss Susan, good morning. Yes, I hope to keep the old span from flexing too much as each of the truck rolls over. Justine shook her head. They will have to drive very slow, too fast, and they will generate a lateral wave. We cannot afford any lateral waves. Oh, but here I am talking technicals. Oh, look at you. All packed up and ready to go, eh? 
With her eyes, she pointed to Susan's pack and rifle. Yes, isn't it exciting? By this time tomorrow, I'll be on a truck bound for Cheshire. Her fingers fidgeted with the jar in her pocket. Justine noticed. Her own smile melted into a concerned look. She looked over her shoulder at the crew setting up in the next set of frames. Go ahead and get into positions in Bay 6, she said to the workers. I will be there shortly. She gestured for Susan to step to the railing. Justine spoke discreetly. I just wanted to say that I am glad that you have your juju. It has helped you through tough times, but jujus can also... My what? Susan interrupted. Your jaw. Justine pointed at Susan's hand in her pocket. It is a juju for you. My grandmother spoke much of juju when I was small. She had several. Anything can be a juju. Beads, bones, a cup, a jar. Some people think the juju thing itself has a magic, like a good luck charm, or the power to hold a spell. Ah, well, I don't really believe in magic spells. As well you should not. There is no power aside from God. But you use your jaw to remember better things. To remember him, yes? Susan looked at the ground, self-conscious. Yeah. She really didn't want to talk about her muddled mess of feelings. No good ever seemed to come of that. After all you have been through, continued Justine, it is good that you have your juju to help you think on better things. It is good that you can think well of a man after mm, recent events. My mother, Justine shook her head sadly, she could not. All men were evil. It made life very hard for her. But, as I said, jujus can be bad too. Susan hoped she looked politely curious and not impatient, which is what she truly felt. She wanted to start loading a truck for Cheshire and riding it there. The workings of obscure Caribbean beliefs might have been more interesting if she weren't in a hurry. Yet Justine had been friendly to her, so she deserved some patience. Sometimes the jujus tricks people. They do not see the world as it is, but through juju eyes. Ah, uh, you're losing me? Susan said. Impatience was winning. Your juju, you think on this Martin. That has helped you, but... Justine's eyes drifted to the side as her mind searched for tactful words. Since you like him, I am sure that he is a nice man, but also sure that he is a normal man. By that, I mean that he can make mistakes. But when we see through the juju, it can make us see only the roses. Oh, I know he's not perfect, said Susan. She didn't want to discuss her confused future. The more she talked about it, the more foolish she looked. She was avoiding thinking about her past and her future. Having a singular focus on the present was the only safe ground. And I worry that you want to go back there, said Justine. He is, as you say, determined to remain married. Susan nodded slowly, eyes down. She felt foolish and awkward, as she expected. Then why do you go back to what you cannot have? I don't know, Susan shrugged in resignation. I want to be close, even if I can't be that close. I know that. We could be friends. Her mind quickly played mental movie clips of her and Martin simply friends, sharing a cup of coffee, talking, him building shelves for her room, everyday stuff. 
Was that all she expected? Was she lying to herself? Did she secretly expect more? Martin would never cheat on Margaret. Susan knew that she wouldn't respect him if he did. Was that a future? I have no idea how things will work out, Susan said with a sigh. Maybe things will, maybe they won't, but I want to find out. Justine shook her head. Oh, Miss Susan, how can you cook a meal when you don't even know what you want to eat? Ah, there you are, came a gruff voice. Charon strode up to them. Come on, Princess, we got a hike ahead of us. Some trucks already arrived at the staging area last night. They're unloaded. Most of them arrived today. If you're going to help with the loading, you need to get going. Right, uh, just a minute, said Susan. She gave Justine a quick hit-and-run hug. Thanks for caring, she said. But I have to find out. Justine sighed with a sad-eyed smile. Susan hurried to catch up with Charon. Need to get a move on, said Charon. He strode briskly, without looking at her. More trucks are on the way. Wait, said Susan. Don't we need to stop and put on the rag booties? No need now. By this time tomorrow, the ground should have tracks of fifty trucks. A few boot prints won't matter. And we'll all be gone by then. Operatives in New York fired on a checkpoint at the Mass Pike this morning to stir up distraction, provide a probable cause for increased radio chatter. Still, the smokescreen won't last long. She noticed that Charon seemed to have changed his mind. Now he spoke as if the plan would succeed. The urge was strong to poke him about his earlier pessimism. Yet, if there was anyone she knew that resembled a dog, it was Charon. And let sleeping dogs lie. They made better time on the trail through the woods, in plain boots. On the fire trail, they could walk side by side. Charon had a faster, normal pace than Susan. She had to take a couple of running steps now and then to keep up. Gotta say, Princess, Charon kept his eyes forward, you got me stumped. Stumped? But you know everything. She tried to keep a poker face, but was fairly certain a smile leaked through. She had grown accustomed to his nickname for her. True enough. Charon's mouth looked momentarily less gruff. Susan thought that might be what a Charon smile looked like. It was gone as quickly as a camera flash, so she wasn't sure if she actually saw anything. You don't fit into any of my boxes, he said. Boxes of what? Categories of people. I call them boxes. I've been through quite a few tough situations. War zones, disaster sites, and such. I've seen how people handle bad times. Usually, not well. People tend to fit into one of five boxes. He counted on the fingers of his hand, still wrapped around the foregrip of his rifle. There's brokens, zombies, oxen, snakes, and leaders. That last one is clear enough, said Susan. The other four are gibberish. That's not gibberish, Charon countered. Brokens are those people who just break down into uselessness when their whole world falls apart around them. After an earthquake, they're just sitting in the rubble of their home, crying, rocking, boning, totally useless to anyone, even themselves. Susan squirmed a little. He was describing her when her apartment burned down. She broke. She was pretty sure that Sharon didn't know about that, however. She consoled herself with the thought that she didn't stay broken for very long. Martin helped her there. 
Zombies aren't as bad as brokens, but they're still useless. They can't do anything but eat, sleep, and poop. They can't take care of themselves. They become like leeches, feeding on others around them. They devour resources, give nothing in return. It's like a drowning man who flails so much that he swamps the man who's trying to rescue him. Susan wondered if that was the kind of zombies that Pete and the other prepper types talked about. She'd always pictured the gross living dead kind from the movies. That never made any sense. If Pete was using Charon's definition, it was less stupid than it sounded. Third, they're oxen. They're willing enough workers, but they need someone to drive them. By itself, an oxen never plow a field. But with a farmer to direct it, however, big things get done. I've seen a lot of people standing around doing nothing after an earthquake or a rocket hit. Put in a leader, and the oxen start digging and searching and cleaning up. Just couldn't do it by themselves. Susan thought she probably did fit the oxen category. She was willing to work, but didn't have a knack for knowing what needed to be done. She wondered why Charon didn't put her in the oxen box. Then there are leaders. Some people just naturally take up fallen flags and charge ahead. They can't help themselves that way. Leaders aren't always ranking officers, either. Sometimes it's a cook or a mechanic. Yeah, you never know until the pressure is on. Susan nodded to herself. Martin didn't want to be a leader, but couldn't seem to help himself but take action and, by that, lead others. Snakes? Ah, they're the problem. Bad times seem to energize bad people. Without the restraining forces of an orderly civilization, they become ruthless and predatory. I mean, they're pure selfishness, but the thought of getting caught and punished tended to keep most of them less bad. Once the problem of getting caught goes away, uh, they run amok. Natural disasters, even enemy bombings, cause a lot of physical damage. But people can cope with that. Snakes are the source of the worst trouble when things break down. Susan nodded as she walked. She had seen some snake types, one of them much closer than she ever wanted to be again. But you, princess, you don't fit into any of my five boxes. Started out, had you figured for a zombie. Bad, no offense. Well, no offense taken, said Susan. When this outage started, I was one. Well, you aren't one anymore. And you're not much of an ox in the usual sense, neither. Well, she was glad to hear that, even if she didn't understand why. The label didn't sit well with her feminine pride. An ox was too dim, bulky, and awkward. What woman wants to think of herself as an ox? A deer, perhaps. Yeah, but never an ox. You're too self-motivated for an ox. You're not a snake, and you're certainly not a leader, either. They walked along the trail without words. The only sound was the soft crunch of their footsteps. She had to agree that she didn't fit into any of his boxes. She could see how others she knew fit into his five boxes. As she mulled each of them over, she decided that she didn't want to fit into any of his boxes. It sounds like your theory needs another box, Susan said. <sighs> was all Charon offered in reply. His forehead was furrowed in thought. The faint sound of a diesel engine idling interrupted their conversation. Ah, we must be getting close to the staging area, said Charon. Lost track of time with all this idle chatter. Susan smiled. She interpreted that to be Charon's speak for, It's been nice talking with you. 
Charon was careful to display a blue rag in his raised hand as they approached the abandoned dairy farm. The sentry relaxed and waved them in. Two semis were parked up near the house. Two were parked with their trailer doors up near the barn door. A third semi was backing slowly into the barn. Inside the metal barn, the jovial man, from their first visit, waved to Charon and Susan. Ah, welcome back, princess, and my lord. He winked. Charon rolled his eyes. The two men walked inside. Susan lingered in the wide doorway opening, beside one of the trailers. The dark interior looked wrong, somehow. Fortunately, Charon and Mirthman also stopped just inside the doorway. She could still hear them. Things have been a little crazy, said Mirthman. You thrive on crazy, Connors, said Charon. That's why you're the best at this. Doesn't mean I like it. Loads aren't arriving in the right order. Long spells without comms, drivers start thinking of better plans. Some trailers were packed wrong. That really slows us down. Then get this. Echo 6 is a bulk trailer. A stinking bulk trailer. Connors flailed his arms. No one told me it was a bulk trailer when it left Moline. I only found out a week ago. What did they think I was going to do with 900 bushels of loose corn, huh? Yeah, you've handled worse than that, said Sharon. Yeah, I bet you've already done something about it. Connor snorted. Well, of course I did something. I didn't let stupid get in the way of the operation. I had to scramble for a fix, but it turned out Delta Four was going north of Syracuse when I found out. There's a couple of big corrugated factories outside of town. Syracuse? How'd you get anything out of there? Sharon asked. That place is foam-at-the-mouth fed loyalist territory. <laughs> yeah, an impish grin replaced Connors' scowl. Uh, the envy button is just too easy to push in those sorts. It only took one guy. He snuck in, got in a food line, started talking about how the food rations in the center of town were serving steaks to the leadership, while everyone else got rice mush. Had a full-on food riot going in less than six hours. <laughs> that kept him busy. Easy in, easy out. Once Delta Four gets here in, uh... Connor's face went blank. Wilson, when is Delta Four due in? A man near a map table studied a clipboard. A couple of hours, sir. Right, so, when Delta Four gets in, I can deploy those folded boxes and have something my forks can lift. If they followed my directions, there should be enough boxes in each of the delivery trucks that'll be able to carry one of these bins of loose corn. Sounds like you got it all squared, said Charon. Maybe, but that missing lift is setting us back. We've been playing catch-up ever since. Took us nearly a day just to unload the first wave. Connors straightened up and shouted to a knot of men pushing pallets with pallet jacks. Hey, that's enough of that. Get that new truck unloaded fast. I got two more coming in. Connors and Charon walked deeper into the barn. Susan followed hesitantly keeping a wary eye on the exit. Her eyes were adjusting to the dim interior. I'm keeping them empties lined up on the road until we get a critical mass of cargo. Then I'll line up the loads and call down the empties to make up the delivery loads. Um, Mr. Connors, Susan interrupted with a wave. Speaking of delivery trucks, I wanted to help pick out what to load in the truck for Cheshire. No need. The loads are already figured, Connors said. The three of them continued to walk up to the map table. 
We've already figured out what goes in each of the delivery trucks, based on projected incoming. There's nothing to decide. But, sir, Alpha 2 says they're ahead of schedule. ETA one hour, said Radio Man Wilson. Early? There is no early. Only right on time. I won't have anywhere to put them. Have them hold that, uh, Point Yankee until they're back on schedule. There's no dot on Cheshire, Susan pointed to the map spread over the table. Huh? You have dots on lots of towns. That's where the delivery trucks are going, right? Right. Connors looked over Susan's head. Guys, hey, those pallets will be the last ones to load. Don't leave them there. Put them along the back wall. There should be a dot on Cheshire. Look, Connors began a patronizing tone. We can't stop in every town. There are over 400 of them. Some towns will be distribution hubs. Don't worry about Cheshire. There's two dots on Nutfield. See? The second one has food for Cheshire. How are you going to get the grain out of that hopper trailer? asked Charon. Got a ramp rigged up. We can slide the boxes under and... Sir, Fox 5 and Charlie 5 are ten minutes out. Why can't one of the Nutfield dots go on Cheshire instead? Nutfield has a lot of thieves. They'll just steal it all. Connor shouted over Susan's head again. Malcolm, tell those two empties to move out of here. Take their places in line up the road. Got two incoming. Ten minutes. So it wouldn't be a big deal to just move this dot right here, right? Connors glared at her. I spent weeks figuring out this whole delivery plan. Moving that one dot doesn't change your plan, she said. It just goes a little farther. Look, I have a lot of things to tend to. And what's going in those trucks? Susan avoided Connor's eyes. She traced alternate routes with her fingers. Because I really want to make sure it's... I already told you. The loads have all been figured out. This isn't pushing a cart up and down the aisles at Piggly Wiggly. We've divided up whatever comes. No, not there, you idiots. They're still in the way. Does that look like a back wall to you? Well, I'd like to see what's on the list, anyhow, she said. I know the people there and their needs. I could... Sir, drivers to see you. Oh, what now? Make it quick. I'm busy. An older man and woman stepped into the circle of light around the map table. Ah, uh, we changed our minds, said the man. He and the woman nodded to each other. You what? Changed our minds. Uh, we can't go in. Well, this is one a hell of a time to... You knew the deal when you volunteered. Yes, uh, we knew the trip into New Hampshire would be a one-way haul. Uh, we probably wouldn't be able to get out for a long time, uh, if ever. So there you go, said Connors with finality. We were fine with that, said the woman. But our son, uh, we found out while we were driving through Vermont that his wife died in childbirth. Our newest little grandbaby lived, but now our son is alone with four children, uh, one of them a newborn. Uh, we can't leave him now. Oh, that's just great. Two trucks break down, so I have to rejigger my loads. Now I'm short a set of drivers, too. Like I can just call up the motor pool and... I want to go to New Hampshire. Susan leaned in to catch Connors' attention. Can you drive a tractor trailer? He raised one skeptical eyebrow. Um, well, um... That's what I thought. But he can. Susan pointed to Malcolm. He's not on the driver list. But he can drive trucks. That's how he got here, she said. Oh, ask him. Oh, for crying out loud. Malcolm, over here a minute. Charon, did you bring her here just to screw up my plans? Charon held up his hands and shook his head. Uh, don't look at me. 
Uh, "'What do you want?' asked Malcolm. "'Princess here has volunteered you to drive one of the delivery trucks. "'These people want to beg off of their agreement to drive in. "'Our son and grandchildren need us.' "'And drive it to Cheshire,' Susan added with a quick nod. "'I didn't say that,' snapped Connors. "'But he could,' she added. "'He's been there. He knows the way.' "'Sir, these two were assigned to drive Juliet too to Laconia.' "'You could switch assignments,' Susan said. "'How hard could that be? "'Malcolm could drive the truck for the second dot that was on Nutfield "'but is now on Cheshire. "'And I'll ride shotgun,' she beamed. "'Connor slapped his hand over his face. "'Malcolm!' "'Yeah, sure, I guess I could. Uh, "'Nothing for me back there in Baltimore.' "'Great,' said Susan. "'I'll pick out what goes in the truck.' She knew she was pushing her point, but she sensed cracks in Connors's wall. I didn't say that either. The loads are already divvied up, and I'm sure you've done a great job. I'll work with your divvy and improve it just a little. It's only for one truck. Uh, where's your list? Connors looked at Charon as if expecting to be bailed out. That's your plan, Charon said with a shrug. I just work security. Fine, Connors slammed a clipboard down under the table. You got your stupid truck. You two, go back and help your son and raise grandbabies. Wilson, swap packets for India 6 and Juliet 2. Malcolm, you've got Juliet 2. You and Princess, get out of here. I've got too much to do to keep this daycare in session. Trucks continued to arrive all throughout the day. A cold wind whipped up. A dry, mean snow began to fall. Malcolm continued to help with the unloading and stacking. Susan walked up and down between the rows of pallets. She held a loading diagram for a typical trailer and its intended inventory. Juliet, too, was slated to carry 28 pallets. The load was to be distributed between the towns of Cheshire, Longmeadow, and Harstead. Playing favorites, Susan decided that Longmeadow and Harstead would get nine pallets each. Cheshire would get ten. Most of Connors's list seemed logical enough. Each town was to get two pallets of corn, two flour, one rice, two pallets of canned fruits and veggies, one of canned meat, and one of miscellaneous. Spread over hundreds of people, it wasn't a lot of food, yet it might spell the difference between surviving until spring or not. I'll bet miscellaneous could use some tweaking, she thought. She strode farther into the dark barn, to where men and women were assembling the miscellaneous pallets. "'Which one is for Juliet, too?' Susan asked. A man pointed down the row. Her flashlight beam found a pallet with a J-2 stenciled on one corner. Only a few things sat on top. No one was working on the pallet. Susan frowned at the neglect. "'Blankets? Bottled water? Though this isn't right?' No one looked up to acknowledge her comments. She tapped on the shoulder of a man working on the adjacent pallet. Hey, this stuff isn't right. My assignment is to fill the other four pallets, he said. He waggled a piece of paper for her to see. So I wouldn't know. Well, I know. Take these blankets and give them to someone else. And the bottled water, too. They have hand pumps on their wells in Cheshire. Medical supplies look good, but what else do you have? Huh? What else are you working from to make up these miscellaneous pallets? Uh, that line over there? The man pointed to another row of pallets along the sidewall. Okay, cool. Come on, we'll get some better things. But I was... It'll only take a couple of minutes. Come on. She strode toward the line of supplies. 
When she looked back, the man wasn't walking. Well, let's get this done. The man blinked a few times, then followed. Sacks of salt are good. She loaded two sacks into his arms. Is that a welder? Yeah. Good. Martin can use that. It's nice that it's not too heavy. She laid the welder on its side atop the bags of salt. Welders need those stick things, too, though, right? The man nodded over the top of his load. She found a case of assorted welding rods. The variety of sizes temporarily confused her. She took one box of each color. Oh, generators. This one is bigger than what Martin has. He can rig up another tin man. She cut the plastic tie-down straps and wheeled the generator down the aisle. The man set the welder next to the generator on the J-2 pallet. I think that'll do, Susan said. I can handle the rest, I think. It's all the smaller stuff. Thanks so much for your help. Oh, you've been great. Uh, yeah, you're welcome. The man smiled and returned to his prior tasks. Back at the line of miscellaneous supplies, Susan had filled her arms with hand tools. She wasn't sure what some of them were used for, but she was confident that Martin or Carlos would know. She lingered over a stack of boxes containing screws and nails. Ooh, that's good, too, she thought. There's always stuff needs fixing. On another pallet set boxes of electronic gear from a Walmart warehouse. Most of the boxes were walkie-talkies and radios. Susan picked up one and then another. What did GMRS mean? She had heard of CB before, but that was the extent of her experience. She scooped up an armful of radios. Judy and Walter will know what to do with these. Susan could hear the wind howl through the holes in the barn's metal roof. Inside the barn, it was never warm, but the howl made it feel even colder. Through a small window, she could see that the snow was driven hard by the wind. Not much had accumulated. Connors continued to direct people like a frazzled high school band teacher. Over the soft putter of the forklifts came scrapes and squeaks as workers pulled pallets of goods into place with pallet jacks and pry bars. Other people walked between the rows of pallets. They stopped at various points to put a sack of flour or rice into backpacks. Most of the people were strangers, but Susan recognized a few of them as workers on the bridge that didn't live at the camp. They were collecting their reward before the trucks crossed. Perhaps it was a precaution, in case the bridge didn't hold up to the strain of heavy trucks. At least some food will have made it across the river. Susan dismissed the notion of failure. The bridge would hold. Justine knew what she was doing. Susan found cooking oil. Oh, Pat would be pleased, she thought. She set the cans on the J-2 pallet and stood back to admire the accumulated pile. She had to wrap the pallet with cling wrap to keep it all from falling over. She hung a J-2 tag on the pallet, stacked with sacks of seed corn. The farmers in Cheshire would need to plant new crops in order to have food for next winter. She claimed one of the cardboard bins of loose corn, too. She lingered over a line of canned meat pallets from a packing plant in Iowa. It was hard to see what exactly the boxes contained since they were minimally marked and wrapped in cling plastic. She had to pull the plastic flat. Canned luncheon meat. She read the label out loud. That's not too descriptive. Potted meat? That doesn't say much either. I suppose it can't be much worse than raccoon and crow. She rummaged along the side of the pallet, trying to read more of the cartons within the cling wrap. Get out! She shouted with glee. She tore at the plastic to get at the cardboard box within. 
The workers nearby looked up with curiosity as Susan laughed heartily and held a small can up in triumph. Vienna sausages! Oh, this is great. This is ideal, she said to no one in particular. She hung a J-2 tag on the pallet of canned meats and then ran off to find Malcolm. Susan is finding it therapeutic to be busy working. It's easier not to dwell on her inner brokenness by focusing on a project. Sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. In some author's notes, Book 3, Hunger Season, has been submitted to Audible for their two weeks of review process. It should be available around the end of January. I've been writing on Book 6 and hope to have a draft chapter available soon for my Siege Club members at Buy Me a Coffee and Patreon. I'm looking forward to some reader feedback as the book develops. Check out my Buy Me a Coffee or Patreon pages to join.